0: How is that conversation with with folks that don't understand the importance of supplying clean, sterile equipment and exchanging needles? People would say you're just enabling everyone to continue using drugs. What's your response to
1: that? So if I have a community member that comes up and, and trust me, I have had this conversation more than a few times you know, and they come up and use the words enabling and things like that. I really try and break it down for them and say, you know, I I talk to them about the damage to a syringe, even when it goes into a vein one time, it automatically turns into a small hook at the end. And if individuals feel like they can't be comfortable to use a new syringe each time, ultimately, they're just ripping up their vein, and they're chewing up the tissue on the inside. And It puts them at risk for infection if they're sharing syringes. I mean, that puts them at risk for a whole variety of other things, right? And and so when I'm talking to a community member, I try and show them that diagram. I try and explain what um, is happening to the gear and what is happening to the cooker if they're reusing it and sharing that. That also puts them at risk for HIV and Hep C. And I want individuals to really take charge of their substance use. That's the reason why we do that. The reason why we take the syringes back and dispose of them, well, we already know that, right? I would rather them bring it back to my office or call me and I can pick it up than them feel like they have to throw it into a regular garbage bin or they feel like they're going to just throw it behind a building somewhere. Like that puts everybody else at risk. So, while I'm trying to educate or while we do educate community members, we're also educating the folks that we're serving and saying like, be responsible. If you're going to use substance, that's okay. We'll still serve you, but let's find ways to be more responsible about it. We still have children everywhere. We still have elders walking around. We still have people outside. And so it turns into just being a more responsible user and, I find that when when we can have those honest and open conversations and really just being frank about it, they are responsible. Individuals are responsible and they're like, okay, I didn't even think about that. Okay, let's make a plan, right? Mm -hmm. Anything that's going to get us to them being safer, I consider that a win all day.
0: So it's safer for the individual. It's safer for the community. Again, having those hard conversations the seven grandfather's uh, teachings is honesty, being honest. And, and that's what I hear you talking about.
1: It's exactly what we do every day. We develop all of our programming, every interaction we have. We're truthful about things. I'm not going to beat around bush about what risk you're at. I'm going to be open and honest and saying you are putting yourself at risk and how can we be safer? If it's a community member talking about enabling, I'm going to be open and frank about it and say, listen, you know, this person that you speak of, again, they did not just wake up one day and decide to start putting a syringe in their arm. You know, we have to, we have to go back further than that. And you also have to keep in mind how many times has this person went anywhere for help at any point and had a door shut or heard some people, someone tell them like, go away. You can't be here. You don't belong here. That didn't work out for us very well. Mm -hmm. Right. So we need to, we got to try something different here. And it's about having an open mind and thinking outside the box and let's just try it. Let's try it. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And we keep trying things until we find something that works. That's our goal. You've talked about,
0: the gear. Can you tell us what that gear is?
1: Yeah, so we offer a variety of harm reduction kits depending on what type of drug someone uses or what condition their veins are in. uh, We might hand out different gauge syringes for them that might be most appropriate for that. Um, So within a syringe kit, you would get three syringes or five syringes. We would also hand out a tourniquet A cooker, cottons, sterile water, everything is sterile, right? So we're really trying to push. Um, Yes, we hand out syringes. And yes, we take uh, used syringes back and dispose of them correctly. And this is where the tough conversations come in, right? So big, big, big part of what we do is being good and being comfortable having uncomfortable conversations.
0: That's Audra Stonefish. She's the Cultural Harm Reduction Outreach Supervisor at Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, located here in southwestern Ontario. She's our guest on this episode of Mino Bebatsuin, a podcast brought to you by Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. And I'm your host. I'm Carol Hopkins. I'm and host. I'm with Thunderbird Partnership Foundation and serving as the CEO. Our organization supports First Nations across Canada in mental wellness. And today, I'm hosting the podcast. Minopamatsiwen means living the good life in the language of Anishinaabe. And Thunderbird chose that as a name for the podcast because it captures what we all hope for, for ourselves and those we care about this podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our aim is to offer support in addressing substance use and addictions issues through a holistic approach to healing and wellness, one that is grounded in Indigenous ways of knowing and culture-based practices to facilitate a connection to community and above all else with kindness and compassion. Today we are thrilled to be joined in the podcast series with Audra Stonefish. She is the Cultural Harm Reduction Outreach Supervisor for Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, the Culture Harm Reduction Outreach Program is a program under the wellness team at Chippewa of the Thames and it's in its fifth year now. That program focuses on meeting their relatives wherever they're at, promoting mental wellness and safe drug use. Culture-based harm reduction carries the same goal with every interaction they have and that is promoting inclusivity and facilitating connections because they believe those things will help people take charge of their own well being and hopefully move them toward recovery. Whatever that looks like for the individual, that's their goal. So, working alongside the crisis response line and with the community wellness worker, Audra's long term goal is to provide education about Indigenous harm reduction to eliminate stigma. So Audra, can you tell us today, what's the current situation with harms of drugs and their impact on people who use drugs or their families, extended families, and on the community of Chippewa of the Thames?
1: We are seeing an increase in drug use, and we're also uh, seeing all of those detriments and kind of aftermath of those, what happens when there is an increase in drug use. Um, unfortunately, uh, we do have quite a bit of methamphetamine use, fentanyl use, and other, I would assume, or likely there's going to be a, a, some prescription drug use, um, not only in Chippewa, the Thames First Nations, but because we live closely with Delaware, Muncie, Delaware Nation, and also Chippewa or Oneida of the Temp First Nation. Um, We're seeing it in all three communities. And then to add on top of that, we also have a population that are a little bit more transient. So they might be staying on reserve for some time. And then we would see them move to London, which is the city closest to all three communities and partnering with multiple agencies within London. And then also Chippewa, Muncie, Oneida, we are seeing some of those individuals go back and forth. We have seen that direct relation to drug use and mental health.
0: And what are you seeing specifically in the mental health challenges?
1: So mental health challenges, it really is its own can of worms. We um, we work every day and work really hard to try and find ways so that um, we can have folks access service a little bit easier Right now, one of the biggest challenges that we see is that undiagnosed factor of mental health within individuals. Um, if you haven't been diagnosed or haven't had a thorough assessment done, you're more likely to really struggle with that mental health, right? And um, so really, our program is designed to meet those individuals where they're at and at least start that conversation so that, you know, having an assessment done or um, you know, at least talking with a healthcare professional that that would that could help with mental health needs, um, start a conversation so that we can get to that point where they're a little bit more open to it. And we really try and work to be kind of that middleman, that that warm transfer that can help individuals access service easier.
0: Your program is titled Culture Based Harm Reduction, and in many communities there's still a strong belief that culture and harm reduction do not belong together. They're like oil and water. How do you ensure that individuals who are, you're reaching out to have access to culture and how do you explain that to community?
1: Yeah. So when we talk about working with individuals, um, we try and implement some factor of culture in everything that we do. Okay. So if, whether we're going out and we're dropping off clean or unused gear for those individuals, I'm also going to have a conversation with them about um, potentially coming out and accessing service um, or events that we might be holding. And some of those events might be something like a community fire that we hold each month. Um, it might be just reaching out to an elder and us pairing them with an appropriate person who is an elder that can just sit down and talk with them. It's really meeting them where they're at and having that open conversation and honest and respectful conversation, um, but also making sure that we're always tying it back to them being safer in their use, them being safer for their mental health and identifying that, and making small goals that can get them toward um, accessing different ceremonial events or like traditional knowledge. It's, it's really, it really it does vary and it's up to each individual how they want to do their care plan.
0: Okay, so you said that you make them aware of the culture that they can access. How do you help folks in the community are, that are also accessing cultural events like a fire, a sacred fire, And what is the perception of the community of people who use drugs at that sacred
1: fire? How do you work with the community to accept them? It's definitely an ongoing conversation. And it's always been an open and honest conversation. So anytime that I'm talking to a community member that is either in long-term recovery or maybe it's somebody who's never really struggled with any kind of drug use or alcohol use, um, that's okay. Okay. Uh, I still want to have a conversation with them. And I'm very open and honest in every talk that I do, every group that I speak to, or even individuals that whether you know it or not, you know, somebody right now who's struggling with mental health and or substance use. And it's really important for us to tie it back to the culture in that, um, you know, as indigenous people, we were always welcoming people doesn't matter what tribe you're from, doesn't matter what reservation you're from. We were always brought up with the same core values. And you talk about those seven grandfather teachings, right? So um, a lot of that is based off of that, right? We want to be inclusive. And when you start thinking about recovery and substance use, you know, the opposite of recovery is connection. And that's the whole basis of harm reduction. So when you add in the cultural piece on top of that, and we talk about core values, it's important for us to include those folks that are struggling. They're still our relatives. They're still humans. And honestly, they didn't wake up one day and just decide to start using fentanyl or decide to start drinking every day. If you go back far enough, it's it's 99% of the time it's linked to some sort of trauma Now, everything is circular and we have many, many teachings with the medicine wheel and things like that. When you talk about that trauma and it's linked back to a trauma that's deeply rooted and we start thinking about things like residential school systems and intergenerational trauma and how do those factor in? I believe, now this is my personal opinion, I believe that Everything is tied to the next thing, right? So, whether it's uh, grandma or grandpa who is a residential school survivor or not, um, and/or auntie, uncle, doesn't matter if they have a relative who's a residential school survivor or even a relative who was lost in that, that's going to automatically trigger some sort of trauma. And it has been proven that it does pass down through generations now. And so now we're we're kind of seeing the effects of that, the affects of that. That's true. And I was
0: just going to yeah. say, Audra, the First Nations Information Governance Center in their regional longitudinal health survey found that if you had one to two generations in your family who had been to residential schools, that you who have never been to residential school still suffer from a Um, a greater risk of psychological distress than the Canadian population. In fact, that study found that if you had no one in your family line that attended residential school, you still suffered from a greater degree of psychological distress than the general Canadian population. And so that reflects what you're saying, that if you have that in your lineage, it passes from one generation to the next. And if you live in a community and your family line did not have residential school experience, you're still impacted by the environment of many people who did experience the harms of residential school. And so that trauma Uh, From that lived experience, from the experience of going to residential school, it permeates the environment of community. But I also hear you saying that culture also is more powerful and facilitates a connection to help people um, think about where they are in their life and that might help people to think about where they are in their life and that they have other choices.
1: That's a big, big, big part of every single conversation and interaction that we have, whether it's with a community member who is maybe not struggling or somebody who is currently homeless and um, entering into safe injection sites. It doesn't matter where you are in your life. We are going to have the same conversation with the same messaging that um, all of this Deeply rooted trauma, whether it's secondary or tertiary, or um, even the the vicarious trauma, right? Where we all have some sort of effect from that, and it's really important to to note that and to name that, um, you know, because we, as a as a people, we went for so long with with um, Western society telling us. Things like we've all heard the same sort of phrases like get over it and let's just move on and things like that, right? And but now we're in a unique position as a people to be able to name that, and and God is not that refreshing, right? And and so I take advantage of that every chance that I get to name that.
0: So naming that within our community takes a lot of work, and you're working with people doing outreach to help them be connected, to know that they belong. But you're also doing lots of education and awareness with the community. You said you do a lot of speaking. You have other team members working with you. How do you share that workload? Supporting people in their safety, around their drug use, but also bringing the community along in their understanding that these are our relatives. They deserve life. How do your team members help you with that work?
1: They are such a huge help. So for a long time, Carol, we went very, very short staffed. We had sort of a skeleton staff and quite honestly, it was three of us working for the better part of 2022 Um, leading up until now. We very recently have had some folks join our team and uh, it's, we've definitely felt that sense of relief, but um, you know, just being sure that we're debriefing every single day, that we're meeting every single day, and um, creating that trust and that bond within a team is is so important in this type of work. You know, we we see and hear things and conversations. Have conversations that, um, you know, quite honestly, it could it could burn somebody out really fast. So it, it's it's so important and it's fundamental in a programming that we do that we meet every single day. We name those feelings that we're having and things that we're hanging on to things that are not sitting with us correctly. Um, and, and then just having our staff be, um, trained in various things like motivational interviewing, crisis intervention, um, grief and loss training. Uh, we talk about in informed care, right? Uh, I mean, you name it, we just have we have a whole variety, right and And so, when we're hiring on new staff, I have this big spreadsheet um that's probably really ugly looking, but it helps me develop where we're lacking and what we have
0: skills and knowledge that you need. You're looking at the skills and knowledge. To complement your team,
1: to complement one another exactly. So I might have one staff member who is really well versed in like harm reduction practice. Um, you know what kind of gear you could use and how that's going to be safer and how you can um, protect yourself and be a little safer when it comes to being at risk for HIV or AIDS, um, Hep C. But I don't need that for all three staff members. My other staff member might be really, really knowledgeable in ceremony. He might know, or I do have one that is really knowledgeable about traditional knowledge, plant knowledge, um, just grounding exercises. And so they all complement one another and it makes us easier to move around as a team. So within one conversation, we might have five staff there and they're, they're, interchangeably, like one might step back and the other one will step in. So it just depends on how that conversation is going. So we can find that healthy balance for the individual and have that true wraparound service for them.
0: That's amazing to have an understanding of the full scope of skills and knowledge needed to benefit people that you're connecting with out in the community. That's really powerful. How do you use culture as a workforce to maintain your own wellness?
1: So we do have this community fire that we hold. It's for the community, but we always try try to take that first couple of minutes of lighting the fire and really just taking that for ourselves, um, going into it with really good intentions. Um, Each of us smudge every single morning. Um, We debrief to talk about those feelings and what we're holding on to in the afternoons. And if we need to, we smudge again. I really encourage staff. If I know we had a really heavy day, I'm okay with you going home early today. Go be with your family. Um, But you always want to try and smudge off any of that um, heaviness that you're carrying around because we do hard work, and you know, honestly, harm reduction work. It's oftentimes it's a very thankless job, and and that's okay. It takes a special person to do it, Um, but also keeping in mind, I am constantly preaching to staff, like take care of yourself, take time for yourself, do something nice for yourself today. Um, you know, even if it's just being with your family and sitting down for dinner and, and don't think about work, we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow.
0: Mm. Aja, you talked about people who come and go from the community between the city of London and the um, Chippewa of the Thames First Nation and the surrounding First Nations. So people are moving back and forth all the time. How much, and you also mentioned couch surfing, how much of um, homelessness plays a role or the unhoused population? How does that play a role? And where are the resources to help people uh, with safe shelter?
1: Yeah. So when you talk about homelessness, you know, that that's a real thing. Um, We see folks all the time. They they might be on reservation. Maybe they're staying with grandma or they might be with their auntie. Um, But, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's it's putting their home at risk. Now they want to help their relative, but they don't know how to. Um, and for whatever reason, we have individuals that are asked to leave the home on the reservation. So then they're going to try and find their way back to London. Well, the problem with that is our rent costs and housing costs in London are just through the roof. They're actually comparable to Toronto and, um, you know, they're, they're not very affordable at all. We have a lack of affordable housing. So then we start trying to, we might have individuals call our crisis line, which is a 24 hour, 24 four seven line. Um, who I also work closely with. And uh, so we'll try and find them a shelter bed in London, but, you know, every shelter unfortunately is inundated and they are just busting at the seams. So the likelihood of us finding a bed for them is slim to none. Um, but I think when you think about homelessness, I've, I've worked with homeless population for, you know, a little over 10 years now and I've, I've seen the effects of that. I've seen, Folks move into housing even so that, I mean, even that I could find somebody an apartment tomorrow and hand them the keys, but, um, unless they have those added supports to help them through that initial process, um, you know, they're at risk of losing that housing right away. Anyway, there's, there's basic skills that it takes to keep a home. And if you don't have the right supports and you're used to sleeping on the streets, there's going to be some risk factors there and there's going to be a lot of um, stress that would come and anxiety that would come with that, right?
0: What kind of supports help people when they're at that stage of looking at consistent housing in a home? What are the supports that they need in that at that time?
1: I think the supports that an individual need, would need moving into you know a new residence or, or a place to live. Is just having that that support that can come and check on them and say how are you doing? It's um, still that connection. The you're wish-
0: talking about,
1: maintaining right? Maintaining a connection. Right. Yep. So even if it's me checking in or one of the um, one of the staff members checking in with them when they move into housing, it could be something as simple as like I'm going to be here um, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we're going to smudge your place out. And I'm just going to, we'll learn a new skill each time we go in, right? So these are skills that you and I might take for granted. And uh, so, so again, it goes back to that seven grandfathers teaching, right? About being humble. Mm. It's important for us to stay humble. We take a lot of things for granted, right? When I go in, I've had an individual who moved into housing and I went to check on him and he looked like he was ready to cry. And I asked him what, you know, what's wrong? And he's like, I don't. I don't know how to fold a bed sheet or a towel Mm. and it just, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And he had this, this meltdown right then and there. And it it was something that was that I took for granted. And so that was really, really humbling for me. And I, I took the time. I took that one hour and to just teach him how to fold towels and how to fold the bed sheet and, you know, and so those basic life skills that we would probably teach our teenagers and young children how to do. Mm -hmm. Some folks need that. So don't take anything for granted, right? We want to pass along everything that we know, every anything that I know that I can help you with to better yourself, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you with that.
0: Yeah, we know that methamphetamine, for example, crystal meth, uh, no matter what form it's being used, has an huge impact on how our brain functions. And I've heard people say that it's really, really hard to feel good. I'm really tired of trying to feel good, or I don't know what I can do. I would like to go back to school, but I don't know if I can remember things. I don't know if I can learn things. And I hear that in your story about the simple act of, you know, a desire to be organized and fold towels or fold fold bed sheets and feeling the despair of not being able to do that
1: yeah so it, we do feel that despair and we can feel it off someone but you can also feel the accomplishment and the sense of pride that they have when they learn a new skill and that's important. It's important to really celebrate that and those small incremental gains. That's what we hold on to every day, those small wins and, and celebrate those wins with individuals, because ultimately that's what's going to lift their spirits. And that's what's going to um, allow them that desire to want to learn something else or something more. Um, that coupled with having opportunities to be out at places like the community fire or like a moccasin making workshop or anything, doesn't matter, drum making workshop, come and join us. I've heard comments of like, okay, well, I've only been clean for like three weeks. I just barely got out of detox. Perfect. You're a perfect person. You need to be there. Like you, this is for you. And they've been almost having that feeling of being shunned for so long. Mm. Sometimes they don't, they're they not sure how to feel about that. So it's really guiding them and taking them by the hand and inviting them to opportunities where they can build that social equity. And um, there's really no expectation of them just to show up and be with us. Like that That means the world. And it means the world to us. I, I, I hope that it, it is something that would help. Those individuals as well.
0: That must make a big difference when they can come to one of those events with community members and community see for themselves, that person is
1: changing. Yeah. And, you know, those getting to that point, it does take time, but we are beginning to see, see those changes and see the results of having that consistent messaging and consistent um, opportunity, we are starting to see that. So just to share a little bit, um, we had an individual who is, and probably still is, um, struggling with alcohol use. And uh, this person was very, very apprehensive to even be at the community fire. They had been told in the past, like, that's not for you. That's not a place for you. And so they wouldn't go. And it was having those personal conversations and continuing to invite them. And so finally, this individual showed up and he didn't go in near the fire, but he stood outside, though. And that's huge. So we celebrated that and said, I'm so happy to see see you here. I'm so happy that you came. Please come back next month. Um, You know, please come back if you want to help. You can help us. And uh, the next month he came and he came in the fire into um, near the fire. He didn't put any medicine in that time and he just kind of stepped in and stepped back out, celebrated that. This is huge. Like this is the first time I've been around a fire. He told us like in years, like since I was a little kid, this is awesome. Like, I love this. I love that you're here. Come back next month. Came back next month. Well, the next month we talked Prior to the community fire, we talked about putting tobacco in and offering that to the fire. Well, the third time when he came back, he was very deliberate in telling us like, hey, I didn't have I didn't have one drop of alcohol today. I'm not feeling the best. But naming that and saying, like, I feel like crap but I'm here and I didn't I haven't touched a drop of alcohol today because I wanted to be here. I want to put tobacco in the fire today. That's, That's huge. huge.
0: That's
1: like huge it's huge, right? Yes, and and to have him go in and sit in there for 15 20 minutes while at the same time I had um, an elder come in. It was an, it was a grandma and she came in because she's struggling because her Uh, grandson has his own struggles. And so she's a caregiver Mm. and who's struggling and for her to come in and have this young man in there as well and watch them make a connection together and know what each other are feeling and to have this young man tell this elder, I'm sorry, and I'm here for you. And to watch them embrace beside that fire and make that bond and that connection, they're going to remember each other for the rest of their lives. And they're going to remember that connection and and that moment for the rest of their lives, no matter what else happens in their life. Right. And, and so those are, that's harm reduction right there. It's taking the time and being consistent. The number one rule to harm reduction is to show up and, we seen it that day. It was something that I had never seen before and I hope to see it again, but that's what we do. And, um, you know, that's why we get up and go to work every day. That's
0: a powerful story, Audra, that fire that we recognize as sacred. In fact, Anishinaabe recognized the fire as our grandfather It's what pulls us to the center and helps us to find balance. And your story represents that so incredibly powerful. And then putting tobacco in the fire, the preparation of putting, you know, preparation, getting there, getting his mind around. I want to do that. Tobacco is a sacred medicine. It's the medicine that helps us to connect to the spirit to ensure that our voice is heard and our prayers are heard. And that was so powerful. He went without alcohol that day so that he could respect the fire, respect the medicine. And he got a huge gift in return. That grandmother that showed him love and appreciated his words and comfort that helped her to understand where her relative is at. That's an awesome story, Aja. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. that with me.
1: Yeah. It's, it's something that I hold near and dear to my heart. And, uh, you know, the, it's those powerful stories like that. We're talking about two individuals who, unless they were, it's it's all timing, right? And I, I am a very, very strong believer of everything happens for a reason. And people cross paths for a reason. Like everything is all laid out for us long before we were here. And, and, you know, it's just, it doesn't matter what is thrown at us. I believe that the creator does not hand us anything that we can't handle. So if you can keep that mindset and pass that on to the next person, we will get to a better place. We are building the momentum right now as a nation, as as Indigenous people across Canada and really across Indian country and Turtle Island, right? We are building that momentum right now to move toward a better place as a people and to really start that healing. Healing is hard. It hurts. But if you can lean in and just face the storm, it's always beautiful on the other side. I just want to
0: ask Audra, like we've been talking a lot about the people in the community and what you're doing within the community to support people, connecting them um, to sacred medicines and to their culture and embracing their participation and encouraging them. And you're seeing that it makes a difference. Who are the partners outside of the community that are supporting this work? And you talked about housing and there's not enough housing there's not enough recovery based housing housing with the na- with the supports necessary to to help people along the recovery journey what other resources are critically important to supporting harm reduction in the community and where are you getting those those resources or those partnerships
1: yeah so i, I mean and that's that's all true it's just the lack of affordable housing i mean it, I always say if I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is, is build affordable housing for folks. And I, I'd, I'd pick and choose and I'd pick the people that, uh, that need it the most that would go into those housing units. Um, but you know, I, the likelihood, I think I got a better shot at, uh, being struck by lightning. But, <laughs> um, when we think about those added supports and, and finding those partners within a community. So, um, I think that also it's, it's its own, Work and it's its own full time job, right? You want to um, find those avenues through partnership and, and really just services that we've tapped into. When, when you work harm reduction and, and you're working on the ground, right? We're doing straight outreach, we're the ones on the ground having those face to face interactions. But when you move into more of a management role and like administration role, then you're really wanting to focus on who are the other people in charge, who are the decision makers. Right. So more recently, I've started a meeting and called on um, executive directors, other people in management or administration um, and from different programs. So we have Chippewa Muncie or Chippewa, or Muncie, Delaware, I'm sorry, Muncie, Delaware, Oneida Nation, and uh, have some of their leadership come in that, that help facilitate those programmings that leading to mental health and substance use. But then we started tapping into agencies in and around London. Um, and we have some folks from uh, Namor Friendship Center that come in, also at LOSA, um, so hack and uh but i've also invited non-indigenous agencies so and i think it's really important for them to have a seat at the table and so some of those agencies would be um like regional hiv aids connection Ah. they are yeah that's the agency that would run the supervised injection site in london and you know i i worked there as well prior to working for chippewa so I've seen a, a ton of uh, individuals come through that are from surrounding reservations and in indigenous communities, but also from other, like coming in from some of them are coming from far away, right. but they're living in London and going through the struggle. Right. So it's important to have uh, regional HIV AIDS connection at the table. We also want to invite folks that are going to meet those immediate needs and so when I say that, I'm talking about different uh, clinics and area hospitals. I want somebody from the hospitals there as well. And really, this meeting, I call it the meeting of the minds. It's, it's really a time for us to set aside to have open and respectful conversations as leadership to talk about identifying those gaps and to also talk about overlap in service. So. Why would we have three communities or three agencies that are offering the exact same service when we could collaborate and do it one time and reach everybody and, you know, ultimately putting those extra dollars somewhere else. Right now, we all have our own funding and we have all of our own parameters that we have to be within. I, I respect that. But we're spending the money. Mm-hmm. If we can change that narrative and find ways to spend money in a different way, that's going to be more thoughtful and going to create um, a higher an increase in the direct benefit to the consumer, to the community member. We'll see change happen and it's about having those open and honest conversations and just naming them for what they are and saying how can we do our jobs better how can we like how can we shift our our programming just a little bit so that it can fit in perfectly with another agency's programming and have that streamlined effect where individuals that are are coming for service they're able to access service a lot easier like it's just having that frame of mind, like work work smarter, not harder. Right. And it's just a matter of having the right people at the table for that.
0: You mentioned funding. Everybody has their own funding. And even in this province, I've heard First Nations communities say that they're not able to access naloxone kits very easily, or they can't find funding to put those gear kits together and then distribute. How is it that Chippewa of the Thames is fortunate enough to have funding to offer the program that you're running?
1: So for the cultural harm reduction outreach program itself, we are funded provincially and we we are funded to serve CMO. So we are funded to serve Chippewa members, Muncie, Delaware members and Oneida of the Thames First Nation members. Underneath our well, I work underneath a wellness umbrella within Chippewa Health. Underneath that wellness umbrella, we also have our crisis response team. And the crisis response team, um, their funding is provincial, but it's also federal. And they are funded to serve Chippewa band members only, Mm -hmm. um, like within these immediate communities. So some of the struggle that we see there is that if we have an Oneida member call our crisis line, they're not technically able to serve them. However, because we all work as a wellness team, the crisis line can refer them directly over to harm reduction where our funding is able to serve them. So it's finding the, it's thinking outside the box, right? And it's finding creative solutions that is going to allow us to serve a larger audience and serve that, that wider range of, of folks out there.
0: Audra, can you connect with reconciliation, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, um, Solidarity Day, all of these events that are now celebrated within this country we call Canada, what does it mean to you in your work in harm reduction?
1: We shouldn't be thinking about or acknowledging in Canada, MMIW on one single day, or acknowledging Truth and Reconciliation Day on just one day. I've made it my goal and, uh, to personally turn every day into Truth and Reconciliation Day. And what I mean by that is having those conversations, even at length, everywhere that I go, I am asking them, what are you doing? What's your plan here? What do you folks do for Truth and Reconciliation? And if they, uh, share with me while we, we put a nice, um, blurb up on our website, and we posted something on our on our Facebook page or our Instagram, well, that's all fine and dandy. But if there's no action behind that, then it's just a fluffy page with fluffy words on there. And, you know, and I have told folks that and I have watched jaws drop like, wow. Um, I've also seen a lot of change, you know, and I, I really want to highlight some some programs in and around London, you know, we have the London Health Sciences Center that's, is putting action behind their words. They've, they've allowed a program to form itself. They're completely hands off. And it's a program that is uh, designed to help individuals that have really, really severe or significant mental health and how, and, and, give them the space and the ability to serve those people regional HIV AIDS connection. They've put an action plan forward last year. And this year, actually later on today, I'll be going and providing education about medicines for their staff members. And we'll be hosting a fire there. As soon as I um, get off of this today, then I'll be heading over there to help them with that. And so it's about having those action plans and then actually carrying those out um, you know, I'm not going to call people out. Um, I just want to spread the message of like, we have to continue doing better. And we have to continue to push the envelope. So if you tell me that you're going to do a land acknowledgement at the beginning of every staff meeting, and that's your plan. That's great. I think that's awesome. I'm going to call you up in about six months. And I'm going to ask you how many times you've done that land acknowledgement. And if you haven't, I'm going to challenge you again and then I'm going to call you up in six months again and ask you about that and so I think it's it's about being respectful we're not coming at this with you know I had a good friend of mine Joe Antone who works over at London Health Sciences and he he made it so crystal clear for me he said we're at a point right now as Indigenous people where we have our spearhead but there's not blood at the end there's it's love at the end and we need to lead and carry ourselves in that way. We're not out to get vengeance and we're not out to do all of these things and, and do it in a harmful way. We are out right now with love and trying to spread that and coming from a good place with those good intentions. And, and it really does spread like wildfire. So if you can be respectful, but hold people accountable that's when you'll start seeing a lot of change happen. And and I think we're, like I mentioned before, I think we're right there. We're building that momentum that's going to get us to a better place. And I'm excited for that.
0: Creating change with kindness and compassion. Audra, the culture-based mental wellness program that focuses on harm reduction, embracing people wherever they're at, meeting their needs, introducing them to culture, helping them to believe in themselves again, and that they belong. Powerful work. Thank you so much for sharing all that you have.
1: Thank you so much, Carol. I appreciate your time today.
0: That's it for this episode of Minobimatsuin. We hope you enjoyed it. Please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or where you listen so you don't miss any future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird, please visit the website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. You can search for us under ThunderbirdPF. PF. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I'm Carol Hopkins at Thunderbird Partnership Foundation.